Hey you, it's Sharon. So this is a full conversation of my interview with Omar Oshogle. Due to broadcasting reasons, I had to make it into part one, part two, and part three for our broadcast. But here's the full conversation. Hope this is helpful. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey you, you're listening to Radio Taiwan International. I'm your host, Sharon Lin, and welcome to my show, Last Debatable. A show where we talk about debatable topics, big or small, serious or silly, and topics that some people deem too controversial or we shouldn't talk about them openly for whatever reasons. Let's get started. When the Arab Spring started, I was 15 years old, exactly the same as my guest today. In a navy blue sweater over a white shirt, a young man commanding a powerful yet gentle confidence stepped onto the stage of this year's Oslo Freedom Forum in Taipei after a very brief moment of silence as he made eye contact with all of us. He started his story. The moment he finished his speech, followed by a roar of applause, I knew I had to go talk to him. My life is never the same. I hope you're ready. Let's welcome Omar Oshogre. Today, I have a very, very special guest in the studio today is Omar Oshogre. He was born in Al-Baida, Syria in 1995. Omar is among the few people who survived Syria's prisons after being arrested for participating in anti-government protests. He's now a director for detainee affairs at the Syrian Emergency Task Force. Omar is also a public speaker, actively and openly sharing his voice to enact change, to uphold human rights and justice, and to give hope. Omar, thank you so much for coming. It brings me joy to be here, Sharon. So actually, you and I, we are exactly the same age. And listeners, I'm not joking about this because our birthdays are literally just days apart. Two weeks. I'm yes. Two weeks older. Yeah, so you're slightly older than, than I am when the Arab Spring began in 2010. You were 15 years old. What were some changes you felt and observed in Syria at the time? When the protest broke out in Tunisia and in Egypt, I would see some of that on the TV, but I never understood what people were really asking for. I didn't know what freedom meant, what democracy meant. I just saw thousands of people on the street. But that wasn't the most important part of my life. Watching the news was not a fun thing for a kid. I, I was in love with a girl, and she was my world. I could do nothing but think about her and think about the reaction she will have when she opens my first letter and when she falls in love. <laughs> and the other part was my dad forcing me to study all the time. School was the most important thing for my dad. He would make me up at five in the morning to study during mm -hmm. the summer. Discipline. Yeah. You know, extreme discipline, mm -hmm. extreme structure. And he was an officer, so he treated us like soldiers at home. We had like really to do certain tasks. One in 2011 in March. The people of my hometown went out to the street asking for freedom. I didn't join because I knew what they meant by freedom. I joined because my cousin, who was my closest friend and like my role model, the person I loved the most, he called me and he said, hey, come in and join us. And I go downtown and I join the protest. Uh, they handed me a rose. Mm -hmm. As soon as I came to the protest, they handed me a rose. And the first idea is that it's so beautiful. I have to keep it so good so I can give it to the girl I love. Things started to, to look weird when, when I started to see the police officers and the military. I am very used to see military mm -hmm. tanks, weapons, because yeah. my dad was an officer. I yes. lived in a military area before we moved back to our hometown, Al-Baida. So when 
The officer said to the soldiers to load their guns and they loaded their guns and then to aim and they were like aiming at us. It gets became from you know everybody's shouting freedom, 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 freedom and people are so happy, so excited mm. to be going straight from freedom, freedom to complete silence. Everybody's looking, waiting, believing that the soldiers would never shoot us because they are our people. Mm-hmm. This is not a foreign army invading our country. This is our own army. And then the officer said, shoot. Many soldiers don't want to shoot. But what they did is that they had army soldiers in front, behind them intelligence services officers. If a soldier does not shoot, the officer behind him will shoot him. So the soldiers who just reacted, what? Shoot? Shoot our own people. We can't do that. They were shot from behind. Some of them tried to run away, some of the soldiers, because for them, they know who is on the street. They can't just kill people. Suddenly, they were forced to to shoot or be shot. Some of them refused, so they were killed, and the others started to shoot. Out of fear, a lot of them started to shoot, because here's the most important thing you learn in Syria. Intelligence services have all the power. Intelligence services has all the money, and they cannot be prosecuted for their crimes. Mm -hmm. They have full impunity. And unfortunately, a couple of years after that, that's pretty much exactly what happened to you and people you love. From what I know is that in 2012, the intelligence officers, they came to your cousin's place and they captured you and your cousins. Could you share with us what happened that day? It was a Friday um, after the Friday prayer. Uh, I was at that time living at my sister, just moved out from my cousin's place. The reason I moved from my family house during high school to live with my cousins is that my cousin's house was in front of the school, which means I don't need to go from my hometown, go through the checkpoints Mm. of the intelligence services to make it to school because they could arrest me. Imagine yourself just going to school, going through checkpoint. If the soldier on the checkpoint doesn't like your hair, they can take you down from the bus, torture you from front of everyone. They may take you to prison and so on. So you want to skip that fear and you just want to live somewhere so close to school. So I lived there. But then my father, for some reason, called me. And my father never, never calls. Such a, the most dry father you could ever imagine. Okay. He wanted us to be very tough. Mm. So he acted so tough all the time. And for the first time, I've been having phone for a long time. The first time my dad calls me, he calls me and say, you move back home. I don't want you to be living with your cousins. So I moved to my sister because my father's orders are things you follow. On that Friday after the pairs, I wanted to go to my cousin's house because I have my books there. I didn't move everything to my sister yet. So I went there. I knocked the door and Bashir opens. Bashir is the favorite. I clearly discriminate between who I love the most. I was there, so I get so excited. I sit with him, we talk, and you know, he's the most fun, the most inspiring human being. He's the kind of person when you walk with him on the street, everybody waves at you, Mm. everybody, you know, not at you, at him, but you feel (laughs) the honor anyway. Yeah, he's well. A very loved person, respected, and has a very, very smiley, lovely face with a very approachable personality. Before I pick my books to go, the door get knocked, you know, there's nothing special with the door being knocked except it was a Friday. Friday after the prayers, that's usually the time the intelligence services attack to arrest people. That became the situation after 2011. Mm. So I decided to go to the door and see from the little eye in the door two people that are well-dressed like they have suit. 
Extremely well dressed. Extremely well dressed. Too nice to be mm. to be a regular visit. Mm. So I go back to the room, like a few steps away, and say, Bashir, this is intelligence services. Run away. Bashir looks from the window. There was intelligence service cars everywhere surrounding the whole neighborhood. Bashir is run from that room through the balcony. This is the third floor. Mm. But Bashir was a very sporty guy. So he would do it in regular life. What happened is that um, he jumped from the third floor, came in the garden of the neighbor living in the first floor. Then he tried to run over the fence. The fence was had some, you know, glass on it to prevent, you know, people or animals from coming mm. over it. He grabbed all this glass in his hands, so his hands bled so much. And then he failed to jump over the fence. It was too high. By that time, the neighbor who was downstairs heard the noises, so he went out and he saw someone, so he captured that guy. Bashir was a blonde guy, but what he did is, under the revolution, what he did is he colored his hair mm. black and changed a bit. He wanted to change his appearance so the intelligence services cannot easily find him. So the neighbor did not recognize him in the first second, so the neighbor captured him. And by, by the time that Bashir was telling the neighbor, hey, let me go, I'm your neighbor, I need to run away, the intelligence services are here. The intelligence services was coming closer and they were like a circle over, around the buildings in that neighborhood, mm. coming closer and closer and closer. And they caught Bashir. And I can't see any of this. I'm just upstairs. And as soon as I opened the door to them, because I I wasn't brave as a boy, I wouldn't dare to jump from the okay. third floor. I can't do it. Yeah, you're very young. And <laughs> I was very young and I was not a brave guy. I was, you know, brave in school, <laughs> not brave in jumping or fighting. I don't know what to do except I open the door. I open the door and the first thing that comes is there a gun in my head. They say, turn around. I turn around and the head of the gun goes to the back of my head and they say, walk in front of us and open every single door. What are they afraid of? They know that there's no one going to fight me. And we are peaceful protesters and we're mm -hmm. not even protesters right now. We are in our home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so I open every single door and then they find my, they find my other cousin asleep, Rashad, the younger brother, and they take him from his bed. And for some reason, I don't understand why Rashad was only saying one thing. Let me change my clothes. Let me change my clothes. And I'll look at him. The gun is in my head. Look at him, Rashad. This is not your biggest problem right now. You don't want to change your clothes. And he says, you don't understand. I need to change my clothes. And I really didn't understand. I opened a room and my female cousin, Noor, mm. she was my age, 17 years old then. She was asleep. All of this was in a very extreme quietness. Mm. I tell them, there is my cousin. She is asleep here. Surprisingly, they said, okay, close the door. We didn't bother. They didn't bother her. And then they took me down. And then I saw Bashir inside the intelligence service car and they were trying to get Rashad in, the little, the younger one. Rashad was refusing all the power. He's trying to make noises. So all the women in the neighborhood would come down and try to rescue him. He screamed so much. He, it took them so long time to get him in the car. They hit him so much with the back of their guns. Yeah. And then they were going to take me in the car. And then the officer who was leading the whole operation is a guy who knows my father. So he looked at me and said, are you the son of Ahmed al-Shogri? I said, yes. He said, okay, leave, but don't come back here. So I walked away. They were driving exactly next to me very slowly. Then they turned left and I kept walking. Then I thought, they may come back. I have to go back to the house. First, to get my books because mm -hmm. I had to teach a, a math lesson to go to. <laughs> yeah. 
and also had my female cousin there. I had to make sure she leaves the house in case anything happens. I go there back. I wake her up. She gets ready. I call her dad, my cousin's dad, and say, hey, they took your sons. And he says, okay, thank you. I say to Noor the following, those are monsters. If they come back, you have to be quiet, follow order. Don't do any rebellious thing. And Noor says, if they ever try to come back, I will punch them in the face. I will kill them for what they did for taking my brothers. I said, Noor, you calm down now. And did they come back? They came back. Just minutes later, they were coming up on the stairs. And then Noor was having fires in her eyes. And as soon as the soldiers come up up to the door, and poof, Noor hits that soldier on his face. Hitting a soldier that has so much power and being a woman is the definition yeah. of making that human being very angry. They get so angry. Mm-hmm. And they took me and took Noor to the cars. And they took us to prison. And it was her first time. But it was my seventh time in prison as a non-criminal, innocent civilian being mm-hmm. taken to prison for peacefully yeah. protesting sometimes, most of the times not doing anything from home or from my way to school or once from my classroom. Imagine, just imagine, you're sitting in your classroom in high school, first year of high school, in the middle of classroom. The teacher is teaching you and then you hear the footsteps coming closer to your room. The teacher slowly gets quiet and nervous and all the students, we are waiting. Are they going to stop by our door? Who is coming? Mm. Who is that? And suddenly the door got like kicked away. And then the soldiers come in. They say, who's Omar Shogri? And I don't know what to do. Mm. Should I raise my hand? Should I speak? What should I do? And they come, they take me, they put me in the middle of the classroom. They start to hit me so hard. So I start to bleed from my mouth. And my I just remember seeing my blood everywhere. And I also remember seeing all my class, my classmates gathering in that corner, afraid in the other corner. The teacher feeling so helpless mm. that he can do nothing to protect his student. And then they take me to prison. The whole thing happened just just make me an example for the rest of the students. So they take me with my cousins. And then in the first prison we were in before they transfer us to another, they were torturing only Bashir and Rashad, forcing them to say that they had weapons. Mm. And they were threatening them with torturing their sister. We have a culture where a man is ready to sacrifice his life for his sister, for his mom. And that's the culture. So the boys say, no, we haven't killed. But then when they threaten them with their sister, they say, yes, we had weapons. We had killed anyone you want, whatever you want, Mm. whatever statement you want, we give you. Hours later, they transferred us to another prison. And that's when things started to change. The further you go from home, the less likely you are to return home. Mm -hmm. Um, And they transferred us and they put us in another prison like for 20 days. And that's when... It was the real taste of torture. I've been tortured many times before uh, since 2011, and now we are in the end of 2012. And that was different because I wasn't tortured on my own. I was tortured uh, with the ones I loved the most. It, there was a good part of it and a bad part of it. Bad part of it is feeling in extreme pain hearing you, your cousin's bones getting broken. They were breaking Bashir's teeth. They make you hear it. They make sure you hear it. They're mm. traumatizing you. Yeah. They're putting you in a state of Instead fear, fear yeah. to tell them whatever. That they want to enjoy seeing you in fear, enjoy seeing mm. you struggling, suffering. I could hear Bashir screaming, begging them to kill him. And I was just waiting for my turn. 
I tried to think of anything to avoid hearing Bashir's scream because Bashir is the strongest guy I know. So if the strongest guy I knew yeah. is screaming of so much pain that he is begging to die, what do you think I'm going to go through? I'm thinking I'm going to die from the first second. So they take me and then they hang me up to the ceiling and they start to beat me. And I remember screaming so loud that I never thought I could scream like that. Every scream felt like I was dying now. But I didn't die, which was much worse. Because if you don't die, you go through the pain more and more and more. Mm -hmm. And at some point, your skin gets numb. But you you are not yet numb to broken bones. Um, you're not yet numb for them to pull out your fingernails. And most importantly, you're not numb to go back to the room and sit next to your cousin and see how... There is a scar from his the upper part of his shoulder to the bottom of his back, mm. a scar that's four or five centimeters wide and 50 centimeters long. He's bleeding constantly, nonstop, and he is just gonna die. And I was not in, I was just afraid I was gonna die because I wasn't, I was very sure that I won't be there for a long time because mm. my mom will get me out. Because my mom has got me out many times you before. You still had hope. I had so much hope. My mom will come. My mom will get me out. I'm not worried. My mom is so powerful. My mom is so strong, so smart, so courageous. My mom is the most fascinating human being. I'm telling you, she has so much power. And I was just waiting for that. I was afraid it will take more than a week. And two weeks have passed. And my mom didn't show up. And a month have passed. And... She didn't get me out and I was afraid because even if she gets me out first, by the time she works out the details to get my cousins out, things could go very wrong. They could die. So I was worried about them more than me because I was sure I was getting out. My mom would get me out. And then half a year has passed. And that's when I gave up hope. That's when I knew I was dying. For sure. I stopped thinking I will get out. I stopped thinking that my mom will come for me. That's when I started to lose memories. Mm. Uh, we were starved. So we had very little food, not enough to help you survive. So sometimes you had to fight, you had to steal other people's food. Or you have to have some people who sacrifice themselves by giving you their food. And then, then they die and you live. In addition to the torture and the terrible conditions, of course, that impacted my memory a lot. I mm. couldn't remember things. I remember thinking about the name of my youngest sister, Saba and not being able to construct her image in my head. Mm. And then thinking about my school classroom, remembering in which class I was, it's just things started to get very difficult. And that's when I um, started to lose my connection to the outside mm. world. And then the guards came and told me, we killed your family and we bombed your school and you killed, we killed everything you have. They burned our village. Our village called Al-Baida. Al-Baida means white. And they burned it. And there's a video of them saying, we're going to turn it black. And they did. They killed everything they met. That was the Syrian government's intelligence services in partnership with the Iranian um, revolutionary guards who came in and they massacred everything. Not just the humans. They massacred the animals, the pets. Mm. trees they burned their greenhouses everything they could so if my family died and my childhood friends were killed 
and yeah. my village was burned. What What did you still have? What do I have to get off to?、Mm. What do I have to live for? And in total, like you were imprisoned for three years, right? Exactly, and all of that is still the first half year. The only people I know are the prisoners I have with me. And just three months later, that's when Rashad, the younger brother, that's when he died, and he died sitting. And when the person in the room told me, "Hey, check your cousin; he's dead," I looked at my cousin, and he was sitting in his square. So I said, "I said, I, in a way, I said to that person, 'Stop these terrible jokes,' you know." And then he said, "No, no, I'm serious. We were squeezed、yeah. to each other. So even if you die, you can't stretch your body. You just、mm. squeezed. You can't move." I get really annoyed by that man saying these terrible jokes. So I just knock my cousin, say, "Hey, Prashant, show him, respond to this stupid guy," and I move him, and then his head just falls to the other side. So I hit him on the face. Prashant, wake up, and he was dead. Then we had to carry him to the death room where they, we collect the dead bodies,、mm-hmm. and that's when when I realized that Bashir isn't as strong anymore, physically or mentally, because I was、mm-hmm. set with him. Afterwards, tried to hug him or to tell him, "Don't worry, you know he died. It's better. It won't hurt anymore. He won't、mm. be starved." And Bashir took a very long time to cry. I think he thought if he cries, he's gonna that gonna impact me very much,、mm. and that's gonna make me weak. And he was Bashir wanted me to survive,、mm-hmm. and that was、uh, not long after that he started to say he started to cry and say, "If I ever get out." You know, imagine me getting out, Omar, and going to my mom. And my mom asked me, "Where is your brother?" What would I say? Can I tell my mom that my brother died next to me, and I could do nothing about it? And that was not long after that we heard that Noor was killed too, the sister. So he says to me, "How can I come out? You know, I'm the I'm the oldest among them,、mm. and I'm the one responsible to protect them. I'm the one responsible for everything, and I have them dying next to me, and there was nothing I could do. And I just go out to my mom, tell them, 'Yeah, they died, and I'm alive.' What can I say to my? I don't want to see my mom. I don't want to live. I am ashamed of being alive, ashamed of letting my siblings die and being alive myself. I actually read、uh, quite a lot about your story and also、uh, watched many talks and interviews that you did. You you shared that at one point you were doubting yourself that basically all people that I love they were all gone, but why am I still here? Of course, like I had nothing to live for. I had everyone dying in front of my eyes. Everyone is Bashir, the person I loved the most, and I also was informed that the the house of the school principal was bombed, and I was in love with the daughter of the school principal. So I really had nothing left, really nothing, and that's when, in a way, I gave up. And then Bashir died, and I really was angry, hopeless, helpless, dark. I nothing, but also I, was, I could be a monster at that time.、Mm-hmm. If I lost my decency a little bit more, I could have become a monster. I could have been become crazy. I could have killed anything. I could have done anything. But luckily, I had a、yeah. a thought because Bashir was the last thing in my life that existed before everything else died. Because of that, he was the only significant memory I had in my head. So when he died, I can't ex-、yeah. I can't accept it. I can't understand it. And he actually passed away in in your arms. I was carrying him、yeah. back from the bathroom. He couldn't walk anymore,、mm. and then he dies while I was carrying him. He falls from my arms to the ground, and I try to wake him up for a very very long time. 
and he never did. So when I stand up in my square without anything, I can only imagine him think that maybe I'm in a nightmare or so. Uh, then I would sit in my square and try pretend to be Bashir. I think it was a stupid idea from the perspective of the other prisoners mm -hmm. seeing me and then look at people the same way Bashir used yeah. to smile at yeah. people and the same way Bashir used to smile and then use his words. Bashir was known be far before prison for saying the compliment known as mitwarde, which means hundred flowers. Some people in Syria use it. It's a compliment meaning that you are a hundred flowers, which means you're beautiful like hundred flowers, you are meaningful like hundred flowers, you are good like hundred flowers. It's a very open for mm. interpretation compliment. Being so beautiful and having that such a nice voice and have that beautiful smile, when you say that word, it's become yeah. so significant. He used to do that all the time um, and look at people, smile to everyone. As soon as someone smiles back to him, he would tell him, me twarde. So when he died, when I felt so hopeless and there was nothing, I would sit in his same place he used to sit and I would look people in the eyes. The difference though, I was, I was crying. I looked depressed, I looked dark. The but she used to sit and he looked beautiful. He looked happy even though he was in pain. Mm. Bashir's wound, that was maggots eating in his flesh. And he was yet smiling, it felt real. Um, but mine, it was so fake, I was pretending. I was trying to keep Bashir alive for myself. I needed to connect to myself to something beautiful, keep some, something to keep mm -hmm. me humane yeah. in a way or another. And then people won't smile back when, when you're acting so fake. And then at some point when you persist, when you are consistent with your actions, you can see results. So I would just sit there, seems meaningless for a lot of people, but then I would be smiling to everyone, looking everyone in the eye, you know, one by one. And it's the darkest room ever. Um, it's the darkest feeling ever. Um, nobody has hope and it's blood everywhere. Our blood is on the walls, yeah. on the ground. So when you smile, it feels weird, but then I will be smiling at everyone. And then at some point somebody smiled back. And that was a moment for me to really bring Bashir back to life. So as soon as somebody smiled back, I just look at that person intensively and say, me twarde. And that person would respond back, me twarde. And then they say something in the beginning, they say, um, you know, may, may Bashir rest in peace and so on. And there's something I wanna say about Bashir's death. When someone die, we take, we take their dead body to the death room. And then we take them to the first floor, our car comes to pick them up. Nothing significant. We have thousands of people dying, thousands. When Bashir died, it wasn't the same. When Bashir died, there was a revolution in prison. When Bashir okay. died, the guards had to leave the corridors because everybody, Bashir haven't spoken to, he just spoke for a few prisoners during his years there, but Bashir had a lot of impact on people and his behaviors. So what happened is that when he died, all the prisoners stood up, mm. everybody stood up and then people started to scream. That was a protest that we wanted to wash his body the way you do to someone who dies in a normal situation. Mm -hmm, yeah. And the guards were afraid, so they left the corridors. We took him to the, to the bathroom area. It's not a clean or a good place, but we did it. And we fixed something like a table and we put his body there and washing him. I was surrounded by people. Then we clean him perfectly. And most 99% of the prisoners are fully naked. We managed to 
force the guards to bring us a new clothes. Every dead body, we take off their clothes because we can take their clothes that they have and give it to someone who doesn't. So they go out fully naked. And then for Bashir was fully dressed. Very nice clothes. And then we took him back to the room and we all prayed the Muslim prayers on a dead body. And you make line, you, you place his body in front of a lot of people. Then we make lines. This does not happen in, in prison. No, yeah. In that prison, if you mention the word God, they execute you. When they're torturing you, you don't not allowed to say the word God. They tell you when you get into to prison, God is in room 27. Don't mention him. He won't help you. Uh, they really want to disconnect you from any beliefs or any faith. Mm-hmm. They want to break you, yeah. They want to break you, so they don't allow you to do that. So suddenly there was a revolution in prison. No, everybody knew that, that this could be their execution afterwards. Yet they stood up and they prayed very loud. Every time we said the word God, we said it so loud. Nobody cared. It's like we don't care about our surrounding, our env- we don't care. We're standing together for the first time praying for his thoughts, for his smile, for his small, tiny actions, for his words. Me toward that. And that was the most beautiful moment that existed in prison. Then we took his body. Bashir's body was kept in a very clean place until the cars came and we took up the dead bodies and put them in the car. And usually you are forced, as a prisoner, you are forced to carry the dead bodies and throw them in that van car. Not Bashir's body. Bashir's body was taken very slowly, very calmly, and put on the other other dead bodies. Mm. Uh, Rashad didn't get that treatment, um, his other brother. And I think that day was very significant. It made me feel like there's a hope that people can come together, mm-hmm. that we can live, that we can be humane again. And I want to ask you more about hope, actually. I know that in the cell you were in, you shared previously that there were a lot of people with you in there, and they're from all walks of life. Could you share with us what kinds of people you met and how they help you keep this hope in you Sharon hope dies like really dies but it's revivable I my hope died so many times I wanted to die so many times and then things start to change in prison when I had nothing left outside the only thing I had left was inside so you start to communicate with the prisoners around you you have to open your mind more you're not in your safe zone of being with someone you already know. And the person to my right in this cell was a doctor. The person to my left was an engineer. In front of me was a psychologist. Behind me was a lawyer. What do you think the doctor was talking to me about? How to take care of your wounds? Mm-hmm. What do you think the psychologist was talking to me about? How to process your trauma? The lawyer. How to build a dictator-free prison so people don't kill each other to steal each other's food. And suddenly you go from being the most meaningless thing to be the most meaningful thing ever in your life because when you know how to take care of wounds of other people, Mm -hmm. guess how many people we had injured? Every single one of us was injured, which means you have a fantastic opportunity to use what you learned to treat everyone around you. How many lives do you think I saved before prison? None. None. What do you think? Do you think I had a purpose in my life before prison? No. I was a boy had nothing. I didn't understand anything about life. didn't understand anything. The only thing I had in my life was I loved that girl. And I had went to school. That was it. Suddenly in prison, it switched from being the darkest place ever to a place where I could have purpose in my life. My purpose was learning something I could use 
to save other lives. So I started to learn more. And I was the youngest for a long time, the youngest prisoner. The youngest means that when they break your bones, you heal faster. When they break you even mentally, you're more likely to heal faster and so on. So what happened is that all the people around me were much older and they were dying. So they would teach me what they know to keep their legacy alive, especially that I had nothing to think about outside of this cell. Thinking about your family, thinking about your hometown, thinking about your mom's food, thinking about this is traumatizing. Mm. It's the worst you could have because if you're always dreaming of that good thing, but the only thing you in reality see is dead people, mm-hmm. you will get traumatized believing this is the worst. But when you only think about what you have, you start to see the good things. That's when I start to see the people around me. The people around me were the highly educated people of my country. They were put in prison yeah. mm-hmm. because they were highly educated, because they were good, because they could protest the corruption. Mm-hmm. They would see, they would notice the corruption. So I was sitting with the best people of my country and they were teaching me everything they learned in years of experience. Thing I was learning everything I could. And I remember the talk you gave at Georgetown, you shared that you met a professor and you said that the professor taught you how to give speeches. I was extremely shy before prison. I would never dare to speak in front in the classroom in front mm-hmm. of other students or, or like hold now, a speech yeah. or I would never dare to look a girl in the eye. I was in love with that girl for years. It took me two years before I sent her the first letter. And then in prison, I was taught all of that. And then some people who was who were around me because they realized I learned so much but they said you have to learn it but you have to teach it because those people around you they will die so that professor will teach me how can I teach other people what I have learned and also teach me how to adjust to different people because different people you need to adjust and so on and slowly I started to learn how can I tell what I have learned and in an engaging way because as we usually we, you are whispering you're not allowed to speak loud you yeah. whisper all the time and we switch from being in a prison to being in a circle where you're educating yourself and educating your surrounding. Then when I, you know, turned 18, 19, supposed to be in college, we started to call it, calling it circle or calling it school. We start, we want to make things feel normal. So we started to call this circle school. So when you are under torture, because this happens, you're under torture and suddenly you think about an interesting question. They're beating you, but you think about an interesting question because you get numb to pain over the years. Having it happening every single day, it removes the fear slowly and then you don't feel the pain. If you get used to your bones being broken every 20 days, then it doesn't hurt anymore afterwards. You get used to it. Your body is capable of adjusting to it, adjusting both to the physical and the mental experiences. And suddenly I switched from being in prison that we called the circle and we called it the school. And then I was in a college in the age of being in college. So we started to call it the university. So you'd go there, be torture under torture. You're capable of thinking of interesting questions. Mm-hmm. Why does this area doesn't hurt? Why does this area hurt this time? And so on. You go back to the cell, you sit and you talk to the people around you. I was in a college time, so I decided to call it the university. And then we actually had a had a like a vote. And prison was the most democratic I've been in Syria. In prison, mm-hmm. we built a system. We, we respected each other's opinions and that, thoughts. That speaks volumes. And then we voted to call that circle of education that actually evolved to become the whole room and the other rooms and become around the whole prison. We started to call it the University of Whispers um, because you don't want to just be called a university. There's no university in the world called the university, you know? <laughs> Maybe so, there is. I haven't seen that, but if I ever see that, I will, you're, you will be the first to know. Yeah, you should tell me. In the end, how did you make it out of life out of prison? 
After the first six months, I never thought I would get out. So mm. I lived in my cell knowing that I will die. Yeah. With a major difference mm. there is that knowing that I will die, so I will do the best in every single day. So I die doing good towards others. So when I die, they remember me well. Mm. When Bashir died, they, people remembered his words. That's how I wanted to die. I never thought I would get out. And then in the summer of 2015, they came on June 9th. And they they took me from my room and they put me in another room every single hour. It's quite like this. And just you. Unless they are torturing other people. The the guard has um, a Casio watch and it goes beep, 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 beep a few times on the top of each hour. It peeped for the first time and then the guards came in. There's a small window in the door. They just opened that small window and the guard asked me, how do you want me to kill you? So I stayed quiet. I didn't think that he wants me to answer that. Mm. So I stayed very quiet. How do you want me to kill you? Like he screamed very loud. I was still confused. Should I answer that? He seems like he's looking for an answer. What monster is that? To ask me this question the last day of my life. So I whispered as loud as I could saying, shoot me. And he said, no, that's not creative. How do you want me to kill you? Give me a creative answer. So I said, hang me. He said, that's not creative. I'm telling you, give me a creative way of killing you. I don't want to just hang you. I want something fun. And when you suggest something, you imagine it. You almost feel it. And I started suggesting things. Mm-hmm. And he satisfied with one of the answers. Then he left. And I was waiting for them to come take me. But every single hour, they come up in the window. How do you want me to kill you? Different guards, day and night, nonstop shift. And they still coming every single hour. And I could hear them recognizable noise I think they were writing what I was saying I had so many questions on my head Mm. but I had a question to think about how would they kill me I had to prepare but then last time they came and they they came many there wasn't only one they came many and they took me from the room it seemed like they were taking me to execution what is the last thing I want to think about before I die I spend my time thinking about what should I think about and that's the only regret I have in my life that I did not just go into a beautiful thought. I was just thinking, what should I think about? What should I think about before I... And then they take me... There was a vehicle. I was blind, I had blindfolds on my eyes and my hands were chained behind my back. And they take me, they put me on the ground and my head was on the ground. There was an officer walking slowly behind me. The officer was speaking and he stopped in his way and said, Load! And... They started loading their guns. That's when I realized... There were so many soldiers behind me. Mm. And I knew I was the only prisoner, which means everybody's coming to kill me. And aim, that's what just really gets so quiet. When I was so certain that I was dying in no more than two seconds. And that's when I saw beautiful images. I saw I saw in my head images of my cousin, of my family, of the girl I loved, of birds. I love birds. I think most of it was not the real people, was a constructed image, only the constructed, the right image of Bashir, because Bashir, I never forget his face, I never forget his name, nothing. While everything behind prison, um, I forgot. So I think I constructed a fake image of them in my head. And you know, it's an extremely beautiful moment you enjoy. Poof! It started to tin in my ears. I don't know for how long after I stand up. And I had no blindfolds and I had no chains, but my eyes were very closed. I tried to open them, but the light was so strong. It was a long time since you last felt light. Yeah. And also after life, like heaven has a very strong lighting. 
That was the first thought that came to my head. Heaven. That heaven has very strong lighting. When I fully open my eyes in front of me, I see a tree. I haven't seen a tree in ages. And also last time I saw color was years. So I see a blue sky. I was under the ground for years. It's dark. We didn't see anything. The only thing I could hear is people screaming of pain and the guard laughing of joy. And suddenly I can hear birds. I can see colors. And that made me so certain that I died. That was heaven. That was heaven. And then a car stops behind me. And the guy in the car says, come and jump in. Because in prison, I was supposed to follow orders without responding. You don't Mm -hmm. say anything. Yeah. I, I sit in the car, I don't look at the driver, I don't look through the windows, I don't see anything. Then the car, the, the driver later says, jump off here. I jump off and I don't know where I am. I see a lot of people, but they looked weird. So I was very confused. Uh, are those the angels of heaven? Because they don't look friendly. So you also noticed that the way people looked at you was also quite bizarre. People look at me, I think, a bit disgusted. And that's not supposed to be the feeling in heaven. And then... Um, a man comes behind me and gives me um, a phone. Say, call your family. And I, I started to squeeze my thoughts. The more I tried to know who I am, who my family is, the less I knew. And in the end, I just realized I only know that my name is Omar, and I was inside neighbors. That was the only thought. So if I don't, if you don't remember your family, you are very, very, very much less likely to remember the phone number yeah, yeah. for your family. Nothing. It also the idea of them dead or not disappeared of my head. I didn't. I was just not knowing anything. I don't know where I am. I don't know why these people look so different. Then he said, "Okay, then I can't help you. Go and sit there, next to the church or the mosque." He didn't know whether I was Christian or Muslim or so, and they were next to each other anyway. The church and the mosque in Damascus. I was in Damascus. My sight was blurry, and then I see some people coming towards me. They were holding something uh, colorful. Uh, they came very, very close, and they handed me, I think it was an apple. And the last time I saw a yellow apple was, was a very, very, very long time. And I was squeezing it to my heart, and the, the guy's looking at me and say, eat it. And I would shake my head, no, they don't understand why. But in prison, we get once, once a day, we get food, very little food. Mm. If you eat the food in the morning, you will never be able to sleep. Yeah, I remember you showing this. You Bec- prefer to eat before you yeah. feel like you had to sleep. Because you starved to a level where where, where it's taking your brain away. Mm. And I think they realized that I won't eat it because it's, it will disappear. And then uh, they went and they came back with a lot of sandwiches, a lot of fruit, different things, strawberry and so on. The more they give me, I start eating in that one. I keep. I need to keep something in my other hand. And I would eat and I want to cry. I want to laugh. I want to know if those are the angels of heaven. Mm-hmm. I want to know if I'm yeah. in a nightmare. I wanted to be either dead in heaven or in a nightmare. I don't want to be alive outside because I had nothing. The only people I know are prisoners. What would I do here? So I was very afraid of the idea that I could be alive. And then a man comes and takes me from there. At some point, I fell on the ground, and I couldn't walk anymore at all. I fell. I was coughing blood. And then this man said, you have to stand up and walk. I'm taking you to meet your mom, which meant one thing. I'm not dead. He is going to kill me. So I die, and I go to my mom because my mom died, which means everything happened before. If what he's saying is true, that means I didn't die. Mm. That was how I was thinking about it. And then he takes me, and he takes me to an hotel room. 
imagining that beautiful woman, you know, my mom would run as soon as the door is knocked and open the door and hug me so hard. Feel worth all the pain, all the suffering, all the starvation, all the death, all the darkness I went through. It will be worth that hug. And the door is open and it's so quiet and take a step in. And I didn't see much in prison, but I heard everything that my my hearing is so strong that I can feel that there is no one in this room. At some point, I gave up waiting on that woman to show up in that room, and I walk in, and I saw a bed. You know how in the hotel they also iron <laughs> the sheets? <laughs> and I was sleeping in a 40 centimeter by 40 centimeter square on my on my feet for three years. So seeing a bed was so... I don't know how to sit on a bed. I don't know how to sleep on a bed. Mm. And as, as soon as I come closer to the bed, to my left side, something moves. With missing her, with every powerful feeling that humanity has, and with the excitement of finding, seeing, hugging my mom, I turn around. I see something that I don't really understand. Mm-hmm. It was moving right and left. I was moving right and left. I, I come close to see because I had a blurry side. Mm. Come closer. And when I get closer to it, it gets closer to me. It was a person uh, bleeding from his mouth, uh, from his eyes, from his ears, from his nose. Monster-like zombie with no hair. It shocked me so much to realize that this was me. You were looking at a mirror. I was looking at a mirror. Also, they didn't think about how I looked like. So all the people that looked so weird started to understand why that kid that saw, saw me on mm, the street yeah. was holding his mom's hand like yeah. he was afraid of looking at mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, I learned that you were really, really sick. And I was very sick, mm-hmm. and I was 34 kilograms, 20 years old. I was so sick, so this man took me to a hospital. And in the hospital, the doctor came, and he pulled up my shirt, and he saw torture marks and blood, and so he told me, who did that to you? And the only thing I knew, well, the only thing I remember is two things. My name is Omar, and I was inside Naya prison. As soon as I say that to the doctor, the doctor raised up his leg and started to hit me with his foot on my face. And then he calls on the nurses, the nurses come, and he tells them he was inside Naya prison, and they start to, to, to beat me. To yeah, but, but why people in the hospital Because the regime has created an environment that you need to show support oh. or you will end up in prison yourself. So even the I doctor see. needed yeah. to pretend yeah. to uh, consider me as a terrorist, mm. even though he knew I was, I looked, I was a little boy. Mm-hmm. So he knows I was innocent, but he needed to show yeah. that he um, was supporting yeah. the regime, mm-hmm. so they tortured me. Mm. Shortly after that, a few days, um, the man who took me from that in front of the mosque and church took me and smuggled me to Turkey. And I come there and there was a big gathering of people. And as soon as I get out of the car, a woman walks in the middle towards me and she comes very closely. And when she almost touching me, she just hugs me so hard, crying. And she says, my son, my life, Omar. So it was mom? And it was my mom. She didn't die. And the massacre they did in my our hometown. They killed my father. They killed two of my brothers. And they burned the house on the rest to die. But they managed to run away and made it to Turkey. And then my mom was told that I died under torture. 
um, alongside my cousins and she believed it somehow but every time someone tells her there is a hope she would believe in that to get me out and the way she get me out is that on June 11, 2015 there was two prisoners me another guy the other guy was supposed to be released and I was supposed to be executed they executed him mm. and registered him dead with my name and took me out of prison with his name the execution was a mock execution for the pleasure of the guard and it took me six months later to really understand, grasp the idea that I actually am not dead. And I'm actually very not not dead <laughs> in uh, Taipei right now. It's been very fun. Came here. Listeners, I really wish I have about 10 hours to, to talk to I know, we really Omar. didn't. So I will link several talks that I highly, highly recommend you to watch, especially the one that, that is around two hours. It was an interview you did with two podcast hosts from Lebanon. Called Sarde. Yes, and that one, I highly recommend you listen to the full thing. I did, and I actually listened to it some parts two times. You know, it's very strong that I feel you, w- with all that you've been through, You're you're one of the most full of light person that I've that I've met so far. There was another interview that I did not long ago in Paris with the team from Sciences Po. Mm. You shared that you tend to fall in love very easily. And I you have do. a very open heart. I find that very beautiful and very interesting. And I read a quote this morning that reminded me of what you shared is that sometimes the magnitude of pain that we feel sometimes also equal. So it's an important implication of the love we could hold and we could give. I think the government in their way of treating their citizens in Syria, they want to make sure people fear each other, hate each other. People Mm -hmm. don't, especially and particularly in prison, they try to break your humanity away so you are not capable of becoming a human, even if you make it out. They will kill you either way, yeah. Yeah, they will kill you. They will kill your hope, your imagination, your strive for a better life. And that's why in my my life after prison, when I knew that I was actually alive, not dead, Mm -hmm. I I cared more about love, about the basic normal experiences, you know, spending time with family, spending time with friends, falling in love with that girl and the other girl in another country and <laughs> in a different continent and so on. Um, Good for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, want, I want just, I have, what I like about my life today is that mm-hmm. I, I look normal. I could live without anyone guessing that I was in prison. And I think that's the most powerful part of it is that I have control and choice of whether I want to tell my story or not. I choose to tell my story to the world because I know by telling my story, I can process any sort of trauma that could exist. By telling my story, I can bring you perspective about your life challenges and so on. But also when I tell my story, I bring awareness about hundreds of thousands of people who are going through what I went through. Mm. Uh, This is not just happening for 250,000 prisoners in Syria today. This is happening around the world. Yes, unfortunately. uh, And if you don't follow up with your governments, even though you have democracy here in Taiwan or wherever the listeners are, have democracy. You can't take it for granted. And here, particularly in Taiwan, you have we have an oh, enemy. We've been through a dark every, era in the past. Dark the era? Terror. Yes. Yeah. And you have a big enemy next to you. That yeah. So you need, you cannot take anything for granted. You need to be involved. You need to make sure that decision makers listen to your voice. And if you don't speak, nobody going to listen to your voice. And talking about that, we spoke so little in very, very long time. 
Uh, I, I hope don't know how I've been, edit this, but like <laughs> I know it's difficult. But uh, no, but, but is, I yeah. I do public speaking, so I travel around the world yes. talking about leadership and crisis. Yeah, tell uh, us more about what what you've been doing and any professional or personal updates you'd like to share with the listeners. Of course. So I like I I support and work with the Syrian Emergency Task Force. So yes. we do a lot of work for Syria, more than Syria, but Syria as a focus. Mm-hmm. Then my. My joy, the lo- work I love the most is public speaking. So I travel around the world. I've been in so many countries where I meet businesses, companies, schools, yeah. high schools, universities, and I speak about leadership in a crisis. I speak about trauma as a driving force, storytelling, yeah. mm-hmm. but also speak about Syria, my prison experiences. Yeah. Now, after speaking here in Taiwan, yeah. and which is the first time in Taiwan, which is yeah. my first time in Taiwan, mm-hmm. speaking with the Oslo Freedom Forum yes, in and Taiwan, that's how we met, yeah. I have met a lot of school teachers teachers met a lot of uh, people from different backgrounds and I've already been invited like for three different speeches oh, in Taiwan uh, yeah Amazing. which has been very okay. very cool so I can't you need wait. to let us know when you're back yeah. exactly so when I'm, when I'm back we can do like a seven hours oh, yeah. seven hours interview <laughs> no stay tuned. yeah <laughs> yeah as that. long as you pay me for a one full day of work <laughs> okay yeah okay since we are in Taiwan I think we should talk about Taiwan for a minute then sure, I have sure. to go I'm late I knew nothing about Taiwan really? uh, when I when I was on the flight as I realized I don't even know how it looks I don't know oh, what to expect it looks like the main island looks like a sweet potato yeah and I exactly it does but I don't know that I didn't see it that, never never uh, then I came here to Taiwan and it's the city is not Taipei is the city is not impressive in the way it's, it looks I've been in <laughs> it, cooler cities it's kind of aesthetically challenged but yeah, yeah I know what you mean but the people are very polite very kind very generous every meeting I go to they give me I have so much ceramic by now <laughs> I have no place for it in my bag yeah, it's yeah. unbelievable <laughs> and then the interesting things is the government buildings are open you can just go oh in. yeah mm-hmm. so you can Including go to the our presidential office presidential, building, yeah. presidential office which is crazy mm-hmm. so I met some uh, politicians as well as you know organizations and and regular people students it's been very enriching i really like the environment and it's safe before we began this recording i was telling omar that after finishing uh, the almost two hour long interview i i really felt that my my life would never be the same and it's in the most miraculous way it could ever be i'm certainly glad that we met and i feel like this will not be the last time you stop by taiwan or we meet but we still have to finish off this interview because we need to clear up the studio so <laughs> to wrap up this interview is omar thank you so much for spending time i want to send 100 flowers from me to you i'm sure that whoever is listening to this right now wherever they are you have been and are continuing to make positive changes in people's lives it's just a beautiful thing to in a way in a humble way to be a part of huge thank you well thank you sharon i really enjoyed um, meeting you and uh, meet our day to you too thank you listeners hope you're having a great day or evening wherever you are take care and i'll see you next week bye bye <laughs>